Welcome to podcast number 63 on May 11th of 2022. My name is Ian Duncan MacDonald. I am the author of four investment books. Today, I will first answer five questions that I've received, and then I will again begin reading from chapter 11 of my latest book, American High Dividend Handbook. Question number one. When stock prices fall by 50%, do companies lose billions of dollars of value? When stock prices crash, the shareholders who sell their shares may lose billions of dollars in value as far as the public can see. However, this is an artificial value created by speculators which is divorced from the real value of the company, which is the net worth of the company or the assets minus liabilities. Assets would include cash, accounts receivable, equipment, and so on. Liabilities would be such things as accounts payable and loans. Net worth is controlled by a company's executives and the board of directors. The stock market is an auction vehicle that allows optimistic speculators and pessimistic speculators to trade shares with each other. It is an independent operation totally separate from the companies whose shares they trade. The executives who make revenue and expense decisions, which result in a company making a profit, can only influence the thinking of speculators who interpret the health of a company from regular report filings. Positive news makes them eager to invest in the company. Negative information makes them divest themselves of shares in the company. When shares are bid up, the executives who may own stock options or significant numbers of shares benefit, just like any stockholder. When shares go down, they suffer, just like everyone else. The company does benefit if it issues new shares to pay for future developments. When the shares are trading at a high value, the company can ask for more money for the shares when the share prices are down. Question number two. Isn't it obvious in a bear market to sell all your shares and buy them back later at a lower price? No, it isn't obvious. If you have carefully chosen financially strong, profitable stocks, paying good dividends, whose share prices and dividend payments have increased steadily for 20 years, why would you sell the stock now and take a loss, or make a small gain, with the intent of buying it back at a lower price? You are no more able to predict accurately how high or low, a share price is going to go than anyone else. Why live with stress of trying to time the market, knowing your chances are probably 1 in 10 that you will get it right? You sell when you find a stronger stock paying a better dividend, not because speculators bidding against each other take the stock on a roller coaster ride. People and the people who run companies are creatures of habit. 
Companies with long traditions of ever-rising share prices take pride in getting their shares rising again after a temporary drop. The executives of a company make revenue and expense decisions which result in profits. From profits are derived dividends. Those executives have no control over share prices, which are controlled by speculators. All they can do is influence speculators with their results and their history. You are safer betting on company executives than speculators who go whichever way the wind is blowing. Question number three. Why does the stock market go up over the long term? When I was a commercial credit reporter for Dun & Bradstreet many decades ago, it was ground into me when analyzing businesses that if a company's revenues were not going up, then it was failing. This is understandable. If you consider over the last century, the average inflation rate has been 3.5%. Thus, you need to be constantly growing to just stay ahead of inflation. Another factor that comes into play when you are running a business is competition. Being successful immediately gets the attention of your competitors, often because your increase in revenues is taking revenue away from them. Thus, businesses must be on a treadmill of constant growth to just stay ahead of competitors. This means adapting more cost-efficient technologies and creating products that appeal to a wider market. This constant growth can increase a company's net worth and their operating margins. Increased profits make the company more attractive to investors who perceive an increase in the company's value. They will bid more for the shares. This causes the stock market over the long term to increase the dollar volume of shares being traded. The final factor is the reality that the number of people in the world are increasing. This creates greater demand that the capitalist production system expands to meet. More revenue, more companies, more profits, and more money in circulation results in more activity in the stock market. While there can be temporary adjustments and setbacks, the momentum and need is still there to be filled. The result is the stock market is in constant growth. Question number four. What are the risks of borrowing money to buy stocks? It is interesting how few people hesitate to take on a mortgage when they buy a house. They, and the bank lending the money, have a basic assumption that the real estate they are buying is going to appreciate. This is based on experience. However, I have seen situations where the property did not appreciate and the homeowner abandoned the property and walked away and lost all his equity to the bank. This was in an oil industry town after the price of oil crashed. It took years for oil prices to recover. Investing in stocks is just another asset like oil. 
While oil prices are a commodity whose prices are set by traders around the world, stock prices are set by optimistic speculators bidding against pessimistic speculators. The price of a stock can reverse almost instantly, and reversal can have little to do with the financial strength of the company. When you borrow $100,000, you must immediately start paying interest on the loan. The hot stock with lots of potential but little profits that you bought for $100,000 might increase in value over a year by $10,000. This would be an average gain. However, over that year, you may have paid $6,000 in interest, for example, $500 a month, and you still owe the entire $100,000. The only way you realize your profit of $10,000 is to sell all the shares you own in the stock. Minus the interest on the loan, you might be left with $4,000. What happens if after a year the stock does not increase but goes down by 10% to a value of $90,000? Is this when you cut your loss and sell the stock or do you hang in there and hope it increases? If you do sell the stock, you still owe the lender their $100,000. You still have paid out the $6,000 in interest. Your loss is now $16,000. A less risky stock purchase would be to borrow the $100,000 at the 6% interest rate, but make sure the stock is paying a dividend of 8% and has had ever-increasing dividend payouts over the last 10 to 20 years. Thus, whether the stock increases or decreases in value, the dividend payments should offset the interest payments. Usually, any stock that can pay out a dividend like that also has corresponding increases in its share price for the last 10 to 20 years, and they should continue to increase. However, there is still some risk. Dividends are not guaranteed. So what it comes down to is calculated risk and spending the time to find those few stocks where your losses are minimized. However, the safest thing is not to borrow but invest the $500 a month you would have been paying an interest on the $100,000 loan in financially strong stocks who have paid high dividends for years. At the end of the year, you would have invested $6,000 and earned possibly around $400 in dividends from the stocks. Question number five. Are stock buybacks of a company's own shares good or bad? The purpose of a company is to make a profit, not to increase share prices. From profits, dividends can and should be paid. There is no guarantee that using the profits to buy shares in a company is going to have more than a temporary impact on share prices. If the company's revenues are down or showing little gain, all buying shares in the company is creating is the false impression that the stock is in demand. It is stock manipulation. And for many years, 
It was illegal. It should still be illegal. Sheer buybacks are little better than the notorious pump-and-dump fraudulent stock manipulations you run into in penny stocks. Often the buyback of shares is being done to ensure that the executives, including the chief executive, receive their stock option bonuses, which are based on increased share values. The hand-picked board of directors agrees to the buyback with the chief executive's sweet words about an increasing the value of shares for everyone. If the profits were going to be invested in new technology, acquisitions, paying down loans, or other improvements for the company that would result in further profits, it could be justified but the buyback is squandering money. When it is done, the shareholders should complain and do everything they can to remove the directors that they elected that approved it. The purpose of a company is to make a profit, not to increase share prices. From profits, dividends can and should be paid. You cannot stay in business if you do not make a profit. The share price is irrelevant to the financial strength of a company. The argument that they could not find a better investment to put the company's profits into than their own shares is BS. Competition is the essence of capitalism. If the executives are more concerned about their stock option bonuses than maximizing the strength of the company, you have a problem. All businesses can be improved, and improvement requires money to be spent to keep ahead of a competition. If you're not going to build for the future, give the investors their dividends and let them invest it where they see fit. Chapter 11. I'm now going to read from pages 458 to 462 of Chapter 11 of American High Dividend Handbook. While investing is all about increasing your personal revenues, this chapter is all about controlling your expenses to enjoy a profitable lifestyle. A reader asks, was there any reason why he couldn't just put money in a dividend fund instead of investing it in individual stocks? Presumably, the fund manager tracks the best dividend companies and rotates in and out when needed. I assured him that he had far more faith and the ability of fund managers than I did. Once he gives the investment company his cash, he loses all control over his money. He would have only a vague idea of what the money was invested in. A fund manager can change stocks in the fund on a whim. You would be paying a charge every year you own that fund that could be as high as 2% of your portfolio for something you could do better yourself for free. Over many years, this could represent tens of thousands of dollars wasted. The fund manager, to keep his job, is expected to at least match whatever indices his boss is using to judge his performance. Thus, he concentrates on matching the stocks to the indices. All indices include hundreds of mediocre and poor stocks that you would have scored and eliminated if you were building 
a strong dividend portfolio. It is not the fund manager's money. It is your money. If the fund performs purely, he will shrug his shoulders and advise you that he did as well as the index. A fund is a sales vehicle created by the investment company for their sales representatives, the financial advisors, to sell. It doesn't have to be the best fund in the world to get sold. Most investors will invest in it because the sales representative makes them believe that it is the best investment vehicle ever created. That is what sales representatives are paid to do. Most investment advisors know little about dividend stocks. They don't need to know much to sell funds to naive investors who know even less than they do. There is no money to be made by advisors in urging investors to buy dividend stocks. A reader, who I suspect is an investment advisor, promoted a cash value whole life insurance. It pays a dividend of 6% a year over year. Tax-free, that seems far less volatile than paying the market unless you are looking for a minimum 10 to 12% gain. It even has a death benefit. Your family inherits all the benefit tax-free because life insurance is not taxed. Other benefits include access to the cash value of the policy. He neglected to mention several important concerns. For example, what would be the minimum cost to buy such a policy? if it were to provide an annual income of $100,000? Would your income payments grow with inflation? How much of your initial payment would be paid to your heirs on your death? If you needed several hundred thousand dollars quickly for an emergency, how do you liquidate such a life insurance policy? And what penalty would you pay to liquidate it? Selling life insurance is a very profitable business. They are not a charity, giving away a free benefit. I understand selling a policy like this could give the sales representative a commission of 10% or more. Like any investment, you do not buy it unless you totally understand what you have bought and what it is going to cost you over many years. Another reader wrote that he could hardly wait before he too could live off his dividends. While his stocks were only paying him pennies per day now, someday his 150 different dividend-paying stocks would be paying him hundreds of dollars per day. I tried to wrap my mind around having 150 dividend stocks in a portfolio and how you would benefit from it. Just trying to properly score or analyze 150 stocks would take days in building a strong dividend portfolio by searching through thousands of North American stocks to find 100 stocks going over 50 and paying a high dividend yield of over 5% would prove to be futile. That many do not exist. Quality, not quantity, is what is important in a portfolio. Stocks paying very high dividends, over 10%, are usually financially weak and unable to consistently pay dividends. Therefore, before purchasing a stock, it is important to check 
dividend payments and stock prices for the last 20 years of a stock. You need to determine whether they have steady annual value increases or not. The question of dividend income led to a reader asking, in order to generate a six-figure dividend income, how much money would I need to invest? To realize an income of $100,000 solely from dividends equates back to the dividend yield percent of your stocks. It excludes any capital gains and increases in dividend payments in a 12-month period. If your stocks are paying an average of 6% dividend, you are going to need about $1,500,000 invested. However, normally pension plans and government payments to seniors need to be considered in calculating your expected retirement income. To minimize income taxes, keep your dividend stocks in a tax-free registered retirement plan for as long as possible. One reader recommended a different road to wealth and income. He wrote, I am making more money year over year since I became a hard money lender. I made 12% return over 12 months, which gives up to 18% if a project goes over. Since I come from a long background in commercial credit and collections, his note rang several warning bells. I wonder, how does he find those who wish to borrow money from him? Does he advertise? Is that expensive? If you're getting 12 to 18% return, these must be borrowers who are not able to borrow from banks at a rate closer to 5%. Would they then be high credit risk? What do you do when they can't pay you? What percentage of loan portfolio defaults on payments? How do you check their credit worthiness? Do you have to be licensed to lend money like this? Somehow, owning financially strong companies paying high dividends seems easier and safer than money lending. The following question was asked, does the stock price matter when buying dividend stocks or is it better to just contribute a set amount every month and not worry about the share price? Stock prices matter. You're far more likely to see a stock between $5 and $20 double in price than you are to see one over $100. You're also very unlikely to find a $100 stock paying a dividend greater than 2%. As well, you're unlikely to receive a consistent dividend and see price growth in a stock costing you less than $2. It is all a matter of finding the stock paying the best dividend at a good price, with a good score, with a long history of dividend payout increases and rising stock prices. Such stocks do exist. In this book, I've tried to make the search easier for you. Thank you. Good night. Thanks for listening. If you wish more information on investing and stock scoring, please visit my website, www.saferbetterdividendinvesting.com.